Welcome to In Layman's Terms, a podcast dedicated to discipleship and putting scripture to use in our daily lives. I'm your host, Todd Seifert. I'm the Communications Director for the Great Plains Conference of the United Methodist Church, comprised of approximately 1,000 churches in Kansas and Nebraska. As the title of this podcast suggests, I'm not ordained clergy, so what I share comes to you in layman's terms. I have more than 20 years of experience teaching the Bible to everyone from teens to 90-somethings, and I'm excited to share what Scripture has to say to us in today's society, and I love to tell stories of how people live their faith. Some episodes focus on a person or church doing great things to serve as the hands and feet of Christ. Some episodes include interviews with experts who can help us along our faith journey. And other episodes include some short reflections on Scripture. Thank you for joining me. Those are sounds from the very first service for United Methodist Church of the Resurrection. The recording was used in a video shared in worship October 4th of this year when the church celebrated its 30th anniversary. That first Sunday in October 1990 took place in the McGilley Funeral Chapel at 123rd Street and State Line Road in Kansas City, Missouri. The man speaking in that somewhat muffled welcome was the Reverend Adam Hamilton. At the time a pastor in his mid-twenties with a super curly hairdo wearing a black pastoral robe and a white stole. It was his first worship service as the lead pastor in a church. Yeah, so I was, uh, I was about 22, 23 when I graduated from seminary. I graduated early, and I had this dream of wanting to start a church. That's Adam Hamilton. He's still the pastor at Church of the Resurrection, now the largest church in the United Methodist denomination. He's also a world-renowned author of books and Bible studies, 29 books and counting as of this recording. He's talking about those earliest days, before his congregation even existed. I, I had two dreams. One was uh, I asked the bishop or the superintendent, send me to the hardest church that has potential. Like, I want a dying church that has potential, and I want to try to resurrect it. And I had suggestions in Kansas City of what that might look like. and Or send me to a church, or let me start a church for thinking people who don't go to church anywhere. I really want to try to start a church to reach people who don't go to church. Maybe they've lost their faith. Maybe they never had faith. Maybe they... Uh, maybe they have faith and they just don't go to church anywhere. And so um, so we ended up having the chance to do that. In February of 1990, the district superintendent called me and he said, okay, because I had I'd taken him to lunch uh, every, probably every two or three months for a for about a 18 month period of time while I was an associate pastor, I kept taking him to lunch and I, I'd make up mock newsletters of, you know, the, the church that didn't exist yet. You know, here's what our newsletter would look like and here's what I would be preaching. And, and finally, after 18 months, he said, okay, look, I get it. You want to start a new church. And I said, you know, I'd love to start one on the South side of Kansas city. That's where I grew up. And I know the people and I understand the community. And, and so uh, he said, we'll send you out. We don't have any people. We don't have any land. We don't have any money. We don't have any place for you to meet. But if you want to go start a church under those conditions, we'll pay your associate pastor's salary for one year, and we'll give you a 20% pay cut every year after that until you're, you know, you're not receiving anything at all. So at the end of a year, you either have people or you're going to starve. <laughs> and I'm like, okay, I'm ready to go. And so, you know, that was our, our vision was to try to, to try to, and especially in the community where we were starting on the south side of Kansas City, there was a lot of people who were college educated, a lot of people with graduate degrees, professionals, and I thought, I want to be able to speak to their intellect. I want, I want to make the case that you can be, um, you know, you can 
be educated, you can be an intellectual, and you can be a Christian. That that there's not a there's not a conflict between the mind and the and the faith, the intellect and the faith. From a humble beginning in a funeral home chapel, a place where the story ends for most people, at least their story on earth, to what is now one of the most successful church planning stories in the denomination's history, if not all of American Christianity, to what is now a church based in Leewood, Kansas, but with four other campuses across the greater Kansas City area. This is the story of United Methodist Church of the Resurrection. Where did it come from? What is it doing? And what does the future hold? Church of the Resurrection is a United Methodist Church, and that means the pastor is appointed there. Adam Hamilton was an associate pastor at Central United Methodist Church at 52nd and Brookside in Kansas City in the former Missouri West Conference. There were a lot of churches that had started in the community, and we said, we're going we're gonna to start one that feels traditional. Uh, so we didn't start with contemporary music. We started with hymns. We start, I was wearing a pulpit robe, partly because I looked like I was 16 and I felt like I needed to you know, have some authority, but uh, I looked like I had some authority. But uh, so we started with that and, it's, and you know, a little choir and, and something that felt traditional because almost all the other new churches that were starting in the community were starting with a Willow Creek style of worship. Now we've come to, a, to a, appreciate and include modern worship as well, contemporary worship, but, uh, but we started with that. And um, we started in a little funeral home chapel when we found this place, when it was offered to us, and all the schools were filled with churches, so it was really our only option. Um, but we thought, okay, we're not afraid to meet in a funeral home because we're people of the resurrection. And so when we began thinking about names, I remember there was a district committee asking, you know, well, what should the name be? And I said, well, what if we called it Church of the Resurrection? Because we're meeting in a funeral home, so it's a little tongue-in-cheek, but at the same time, we're people of the resurrection. We're people who believe that, that evil and hate, sin and death never have the final word, that resurrection means there's hope. And, uh, and so we, we said, yeah, that, that actually sounds like a pretty good name. You know, not very many churches out there, Methodist churches called Church of the Resurrection, but we thought it was a good name for a, for a church who was gonna emphasize resurrection. We were currently going to another Methodist church in town up a little bit further north of where um, McGillie is, where the church started. That's Donna Ackerman. She's a member of Church of the Resurrection, but in late 1989 and early 1990, she was attending another United Methodist Church when she got a phone call. It was from a bank of calls being made to introduce an upcoming new congregation to people in the Kansas City area. She decided to go check out the guy who was going to be the pastor of this new church. We had a, a, a freshman and a sixth grader, and so um, we were going up to Asbury, and uh, one Sunday afternoon, I picked up the phone and one of the local DJs, Darla J, called and she was part of that phone campaign that was calling people out our way to see if we had a church. And um, I said, yeah, we have a church and we're Methodist. And she said, oh, well, okay, thank you. And I go, well, wait a minute, wait a minute, what, what are you talking about? And she said, well, there's going to be a new church opening up out at McGilley at State Line and 123rd. Um, and I said, oh, okay. So um, I said, we'd be interested in checking it out. So Dave, my husband and I, and our two kids took off and went down to Central United Methodist to check out this new pastor that we were going to have. Whoa, we get down there. <laughs> Here's this 25 year old, I always cry. And we're like, oh my gosh he's going to be the one to lead our church. He's just a kid. And so um, we introduced ourselves and he came and met us 
at our house. And I think that was the summer, it was the summer before the church began, or maybe it was even the spring. And um, I remember him, and we were brought up in the Methodist church. My daddy was a Methodist minister and my granddaddy was a minister. And um, so uh, we, you know, we did the Sunday church, we did the Wednesday church, we did everything. And so Adam came out and sat down with us and Joel and Katie came in and sat with us. And Adam told Joel that he could wear blue jeans to church. And Joel's like, sign me up, sign me up. Because, you know, I had those kids dressed to the nines to go to church. You just got caught up in his passion and his enthusiasm and just his vision for being that young. The church met in the funeral home for about two years with steady growth along the way. Dan Entwistle, he's the senior executive director at Church of the Resurrection. He handles many of the administrative functions so Hamilton can focus on preaching and other aspects of pastoral ministry. But in the early days of the congregation, Entwistle was just a young adult getting his feet under him for his faith journey. I moved from uh, North Carolina. Actually, my parents moved from North Carolina. This was 1991. I was preparing for my senior year uh, at the University of North Carolina. My parents had just moved to Kansas City. And uh, my dad had heard from a, a new colleague that, uh, that there was a church starting and, uh, and asked where that was meeting. And of course, they happened to be meeting in a funeral home chapel. And, uh, and, and so my parents were intrigued by that. When I was out to visit with them the summer then in 1991, uh, we first attended. So this was six months into the church and, uh, and showed up at the funeral home. What really struck me, uh, first of all, it was just a startup, you know, just a, I mean, it was a fairly small, you know, gathering of people, but uh, we were greeted in the parking lot by, um, by this, you know, curly haired young pastor named Adam Hamilton, who greeted us before the service and after the service connected with us again. Uh, came and followed up at our house with a coffee mug uh, later that day and uh, just expressed uh, a real warmth. Uh, he did personally, but so did everybody. There was just there was just real excitement, which is not an emotion that I would really that I would typically uh, put together with a funeral home chapel, right? Young adults can be a little ambivalent toward the church. But Church of the Resurrection captured Entwistle's attention. The other piece that really uh, caught my attention in those earliest days was uh, I had grown up United Methodist. My faith had come alive in later high school and then in college. And, um, and what I discovered at Church of the Resurrection was this integration of a very serious faith that believes that it makes a difference to the individual to become a follower of Jesus Christ. It, ch it changes your life. But not be, that that idea wasn't divorced from things I uh, really understood to be important to the Christian faith related to uh, the impact we'd have collectively uh, as a community and the strengthening of, of the world around us. And so it wasn't just about a personal kind of me and Jesus, but, uh, but that, that was really deeply connected to, um, to, to the good of the community. And uh, it struck me from the very first Sunday uh, and, and continues to be a thread of our ministry throughout. Entwistle went to work at Church of the Resurrection not long after graduating college. And 28 years later, he's still on staff. He didn't intend to stay that long. In fact, he told me he just planned to spend a couple of years there. But he also told me he just hasn't ever seen a point where he wanted to, in his own words, jump off. 
Another person who found the church early on and remains a part of the congregation is Debbie Nixon. She's now the executive director of donor development and the lead person for the Share Church platform, which we'll talk about a little bit later. In the early 1990s, she and her husband Reed were searching for something, and they found it in that funeral home. When my husband and I started looking for a church, we were in our late 20s. We had two small children, Todd, and we just, we knew that we wanted to find a place that our children could go to Sunday school. That's what we thought we were doing. Um, my husband grew up in um, a family that was a family that didn't participate in church. It wasn't that they didn't believe in God. They just didn't go to church. They were totally unchurched. I grew up uh, and going to church every Sunday. That was our family routine and family practice and going to a Methodist church. And so one day, Reed came home and uh, he said, okay, I found us one of those churches. And I said, what do you mean one of those churches? And he goes, that Methodist church that you grew up in and we got married in. And uh, he said, we should go visit uh, this church. And so we did. And we thought again that we were going to go, we would leave the kids in Sunday school and maybe that would be an hour coffee time for us or whatever. And instead, from the moment we arrived, this immediate connection, this community with this church that was a church of maybe a hundred at that time. And instead of finding a church for our children, we found a church uh, for ourselves. Um, our marriage was in need of help. Um, we were needing um, just to get um, our lives um, back in order as well. And that's exactly what happened. The ministries of this church, the people of this church literally changed our lives and saved our marriage and changed the lives of our children and now grandchildren. And so it was uh, an amazing journey. And I'm so thankful that my husband came home with an invitation to go to one of those churches <laughs> that day. I think the thing that attracted us from the moment that we got there was this outward expression of just welcome that didn't feel like it was perfunctory. It felt so natural and it felt like they really wanted us to be there and I saw that same spirit uh, continue then um, from the welcome that we received and then because we had been so welcomed we wanted to welcome others and so as we then go and we grow uh, outgrow the funeral home we go to the elementary school we continue growing at a rate that none of us ever predicted and then of course uh, at a place now that has blown all of our minds and beyond our wildest dreams. Um, but the spirit of welcome uh, and this idea of always wanting to make certain that each person who comes to our church begins to feel that immediate sense of connection um, so that they can begin to maybe experience the love of Christ for the first time. And so I think that's what attracted Reed and I from that very first moment and that spirit I've seen continue on through the, the, all the cycles of the church. It's one of those values that's never been negotiated in any ways or let, or let go. The concept of hospitality, of true, genuine welcome, it remains a key part of Church of the Resurrection. Anyone who attends anything there, worship, a workshop, just walking in to visit the on-site bookstore, you can attest to how welcoming the church is in every aspect of its operation to anyone who walks through its doors. Nixon may not have been there, but she is the expert of hospitality now. She literally wrote the book on the subject. 
She and fellow Church of the Resurrection member Yvonne Gentile recently published The Art of Hospitality, a practical guide for a ministry of radical welcome. My colleague David Burke published an interview featuring the two authors on his Potluck podcast on the Great Plains Conference website. You can check it out at www.greatplainsumc.org podcasts. To look at the grandeur of the Church of the Resurrection's campus now, it's kind of hard to believe that they once did what so many other church starts still do today. When you don't have a permanent home, the idea of, quote, doing church, unquote, requires a lot of effort. Here again is an early member of the church, Donna Ackerman. Every Sunday you'd go over and you'd, Dave would vacuum and we'd set up the chairs and we'd get the hymnals out and do all of that. So it, early on, it was just such a small community that we were just, we were involved in everything. We, we needed to be the Sunday school teacher. We, you know, we cleaned and got everything ready. We did the coffee and we set up the very first Sunday school classes and women's groups and everything was so small and we were so connected. Um, but we, you know, and we just, we prayed a lot <laughs> and it was just a God thing. It was so cool. So I still get emotional about it. While the location has changed, the mission of the church, to help people become deeply committed to their faith, has been part of the congregation's DNA from the very beginning. Again, here's Dan Antwistle. Growing up in the United Methodist Church, and then, and then coming to faith, and then in high school and college was involved in ministries where I really went deeper into, uh, you know, what does it mean to be transformed by this, by this good news? What does that mean for me to be changed? What does it mean for me to be uh, deeply committed to, to faith? But I found myself in, in places that, um, that didn't seem to, to um, connect that faith to issues of justice, um, to, um, didn't connect as deeply as I felt compelled uh, that our faith actually becomes um, good news for the people around us and not just for us. And, uh, and so that's part of it. But it, so it instantly kind of just caught my attention that, that this was kind of this integrated faith that I had been hungry for and, um, and had tried to create in places where I was in ministry leadership in high school and in college. After Church of the Resurrection outgrew the funeral home, it moved to an elementary school. And then it got to a point where it needed a place to call its permanent home. Here again is Adam Hamilton. So we started looking for land and it was clear, you know, where most of that rooftops were being built was on the Kansas side of the state line. And so as we began looking at property, we thought, uh, you know, that was where most of the vacant land was and where it made sense. We had, I remember, uh, you know, one consultant had found a piece of property for us that was, uh, I think it was about three acres at um, just down the street here. And I said, you know, I just don't think that's enough land. I think we're going to need more than three acres at some point. And, and uh, the, you know, the comment was, well, come on, son, we don't build big churches in, in Kansas and Missouri. You know, it's not going to need that much land. And I'm like, I don't know. I just feel inside we're going to need more than that. And we ended up finding this 20 acres instead. That land is at 13720 Rowe Avenue. It's less than two miles west of the Kansas-Missouri state line. We purchased 20 acres and we thought, well, that's more than we would ever need. And, and we actually even had it platted out where there'd be huge gardens and all kinds of walking trails on the 20 acres. But once we moved into our first building, the church grew so fast. I mean, we doubled from, we were running about 500 a Sunday in the elementary school and we doubled to over a thousand people in one week. And we realized, you know, this was like, you know, this thing was 
was going to continue to grow more than what we had anticipated. And that's when we began looking for additional land and ultimately bought another, I think we bought another almost 50 acres. Uh, so we have about 70 acres here right now. When you drive into the parking lot of the Leewood, Kansas campus off of Rowe Avenue, the first thing you see is the St. Paul School of Theology, one of our recognized United Methodist seminaries. Next to it, though, is a building that's labeled Wesley Chapel. It was the first worship center for the congregation at its new location. When we built it, we knew it was not going to be the permanent sanctuary. It was designed to, um, to be, well, we thought the permanent sanctuary would be right behind it, and it would eventually become a narthex to the permanent sanctuary. We ended up, again, outgrowing what would have been the permanent sanctuary location, and so we built a t another temporary sanctuary back there. We used the Wesley Chapel as a narthex for a period of years to get into that, what's now our student center. And then when we moved into a, our next sanctuary, we turned that back into a chapel. So it's been a chapel for years now, and we, you know, we use it for weddings and funerals and, and uh, smaller services sometimes. I've been blessed to be a part of a growing church start, though nothing remotely on the scale of the Church of the Resurrection. But I was part of the congregation at Shepherd of the Hills United Methodist Church in St. George, Utah, part of what was then the Rocky Mountain Conference. I know that you don't just move from conception of a church to the right location easily. There are a lot of key decisions, what I call God moments, along the way. I asked Adam Hamilton to share a couple of those along his congregation's path to their permanent location. You know, constantly there were things that were happening that it was just clear they were bigger than bigger than any of us were. You know, that God was doing something and we were lucky to be along for the ride. And that's how I felt all along is I felt like uh, God was doing something here. I was invited to be a part, you know, I, he gave me an initial dream about it, but, you know, it was clear that God was doing things and I was, I was along for the ride. And so my goal was to not get in the way, not to, uh, you know, to, to be as useful as possible to God in helping this, whatever God had in mind for this church to happen. We never set numeric goals. It was never about how many, it was never about numbers. It was always about people. How do we reach, how do we make room for every person who's non-religious or nominally religious who wants to come here? And that led to creating multiple worship services and then multiple, you know, ever-increasing campuses, you know, ever-increasing sanctuary sizes. Now we're done with that here. But, and then ultimately creating new campuses. But I would say several of the, several of the key things. One was early on, there was a, uh, there was a decision we had to make. Uh, it was, it, we were a year and a half old and there was a, we were, out, we had outgrown the McGilly Chapel Funeral Home. And we said, okay, I found two possible places for us to meet. One was a, um, a Christian Missionary Alliance church located in, an, in a neighborhood just around the corner from us on the Missouri side. And it seated about 200 people in the McGilly Chapel, seated about 140, and uh, maybe 220, something like that. It had stained glass windows, pews, a parking lot, a pastor's study. I mean, it was a real church building and a real church. And so there was one option, and we could have leased it or maybe even bought it. And the other was an elementary school gym on the Kansas side, but on a main roadway, 123rd Street. And it's where most of the children in that area went to school. And that would require us to get up at six in the morning and set up banners. Uh, we had to create this banner system uh, that was the size of a billboard and erected on volleyball poles. And I mean, it would take an hour and a half to set up and an hour and a half to take down every week. And we'd be meeting in a gym on folding metal chairs. So we had these two options, pews with cushions, stained glass windows, a permanent building that didn't need to be set up, nestled in a neighborhood, uh, but hard to find. Or a place that would require a lot of setup and teardown, but was easy to find and accommodated about 300 people instead of 220. And we had a we had a leadership team meeting, and uh, you know I think everybody was leaning towards the church building. And then I began saying, okay, but which of these is going to help us reach the most number of people in this community? 
And, uh, and I had this idea, uh, we talk about it as discernment by nausea, that when, when you have a fork in the road and one path is easy and one path is hard, it's almost always the hard path that Jesus wants us to take. And so I, I reminded the folks of this, I said, I, I think the harder path is the one that actually has the greater likelihood of fulfilling our mission. And so, you know, everybody agreed, okay, let's meet in the school gym. And I tell you, that decision was one of a thousand, but, but had we chosen the other path, I'm convinced today Church of the Resurrection would be a church of 150 people a Sunday in worship. Nothing wrong with that, except for there would have been thousands of people not reached for Christ. And so it was, it was that decision to take the hard path was, uh, was really pivotal, and we found that over and over again. Some big decisions involve service to the community. One of those decisions came after moving into the Leewood campus and involved schools in the beleaguered Kansas City, Missouri School District. 20-some years ago, we, um, I was preaching a series of sermons on Christianity and the, and the stories making news today. And so we've always been trying to look at how does the gospel speak to what's actually happening in people's lives today. And it was at that point that there was a, the uh, school district, the Kansas City, Missouri Public School System, had lost their accreditation that very week in the news. They had lost their they lost their accreditation, and the school district was in chaos. And the superintendent was fired by the school board, and then reinstated by a federal judge. and And so this was um, this was a really traumatic event. and And I said, okay, we have to preach about that about that this weekend. And went back and studied the history of public schools in Kansas City on on both the Missouri and Kansas side. And they were all started by Methodists, actually. Uh, on the Shawnee Methodist Mission uh, in Kansas City, Missouri. It was started in the base, the first public school started in the basement of Westport Methodist Church. And, uh, and it was clear those Christians believed that educating children was really important and it was a part of their gospel work. And so, I, you know, I preached a sermon about this and I had this idea, what, what if we could do something to encourage every one of those teachers in all of those, in, in Kansas City, Missouri public schools? And, you know, to our surprise, the Kansas City, Missouri, Missouri school system gave us the names and addresses, the names of every student, or not every student, every teacher and every staff member, and the address to the school that they worked at, and so that we could send encouragement notes to them. And so we rallied, rallied our church and said, okay, we're going to do everything we can to encourage these teachers. They're discouraged and demoralized, and we wrote a letter to every single one of those teachers. We started scholarship funds for kids. We had our members volunteer, you know, include in their letters, hey, if you need help, here's my phone number. Do you need school supplies? Can I volunteer to read? What do you need? And that began our work with the, not just Kansas City, Missouri public schools, but now Kansas City, Kansas, and Olathe, and we've got some other schools that we're talking with as well. We have 10 partner relationships. And over that period of time, we've committed millions of dollars to the schools. We have um, had thousands of people volunteer in mentoring and, and uh, rehabbing school buildings and building playgrounds. Last year, we gave away like 65,000 books in our book, bookmobile uh, to low-income kids. You know, meals every Friday, we, we send them home like 1,600 kids with backpacks. We provide free beds to every child who doesn't have a bed in Kansas City. If we find out a kid doesn't have a bed, we provide a brand new uh, mattress, box springs, frame, sheets, pajamas, the whole thing. So that was one of those pivotal moments where there was something happening in the news. And what we, what we recognized was when, when God sees things that are broken, he wants his people to respond. He doesn't send angels, he sends us. And that's had a huge impact on our congregation. So we've, we feel like we've had a positive impact on, the, on our city in this way. But those children and working with the schools and the, and the you know, teachers and staff have really changed us too. So far, we've heard about the origins of Church of the Resurrection and some major decisions that it had to make along the path to what is today. When we come back to in layman's terms, we'll talk about the ministries of the church, 
its ongoing vision and how you, yes you, regardless of where you worship on Sunday mornings, can play a role. Matthew 28 tells us to make disciples of Jesus Christ, but how can you do that? You can help by providing some inspiration each morning to someone else. Just go to www.greatplainsumc.org slash daily devotions. Once there, you'll find a QR code and a link to a sign-up page. Pick your day and your topic. If you need some assistance, there's even a link to the Vanderbilt University Daily Lectionary. Follow the instructions for submitting your devotion and you've done your part to help inspire and encourage others in their Christian walk. Again, that's www.greatplainsumc.org slash daily devotions. Help make more disciples today. How does your church celebrate big events? How does it gather the community together? How does it sometimes introduce you to people you might not have known? Many times in the Great Plains, it's with a potluck dinner. And that's what we try to do with our podcast, Potluck. This is David Burke from the Great Plains Conference and host of Potluck, where we do, in audio form, all the things a potluck dinner does. Celebrate big events, gather the community, and introduce you to new and interesting people. Listen to Potluck, available at greatplainsumc.org. Todd Seifert. In this episode, we're celebrating a birthday, the 30th anniversary of the first worship service for United Methodist Church of the Resurrection. It's a congregation that has advanced from worshiping in a funeral home to become the largest church in the denomination. We've shared the history of the church, so let's spend some time exploring its impact today. How is this church, founded on the idea of reaching non-religious and nominally religious people for Christ, staying true to its vision? Here again is lead pastor, Reverend Adam Hamilton. So we use this, um, this idea that came from uh, Ron Heifetz out of Harvard's Kennedy School. And uh, he talks about uh, the importance, you know, the important role leaders play is to look at, to evaluate how, what does the world look like today? And then what is it supposed to look like? And then to close the gap between what the world looks like now and what it's supposed to look like. Jesus was constantly doing that when he preached about the kingdom of God. And so for us, we're, we're constantly asking that question, where does Kansas City not look like the kingdom Jesus preached about? And then what's our role to close the gap between the way the world is and the way it's supposed to be? Closing the gap starts with helping individuals move forward in their walk with Christ. Small groups have been really critical in terms of, the, in terms of how we do that. So getting people involved in a small group, whether it's a Bible study, Sunday school class, women's group, men's group, or some kind of service group, um, also, even, even the design of our permanent sanctuary at the Leewood campus is set up where we have uh, sections with 80 seats in each section. So it's like a small church. And we, you know, people tend to be creatures of habit. They sit in the same places. So we very intentionally designed this to have 40 small churches meeting at the same time in one room. <laughs> and, and, uh, and then you know, we, we look at our usher teams and our greeter teams and our, we have people assigned, hospitality people assigned to every one of those sections to try to foster a sense of uh, relationship, of fellowship in that group. So that's been key, you know, all along the way is, is it's, is really being intentional about 
the fact that this is all about people. It's about people and relationships. And of course, we want people to have a relationship with God through Jesus. But we also believe that that often starts in a relationship with other humans. And so uh, trying to help each other be mindful of the people sitting around them, taking the time to connect with them, looking at ways that we can help people connect with each other. And, and you know, we fail at that a million ways. I mean, it's, it is hard when you have a really big church. The larger you get, the harder that becomes. But um, I think all of our staff are clear about this, that, you know, our job is to help people feel like they're noticed and cared for. And, and uh, you know, I often will, uh, you know, when I see it, so I walk out before the benediction and I'm standing out in the narthex or I'm walking out as I give the benediction after worship. I'm standing in the narthex and if I see somebody walking out the door by themselves, almost always I try to run over, you know, to where they are. I mean, it's a little different during COVID, but even then I have my mask on, you know, and I'm running over. It's like, hey, thank you so much for being here today. I'm so glad you were here. Or if I see somebody who's sitting by themselves in worship, you know, to go over to try to reach out to them. I can't get to the balcony, but I can get to the lower areas where, where I see people like that. And, and I think the pastor and the leadership set the tone for everyone else in the congregation. You're either, they either notice that you're going out of your way to talk to people who are by themselves or walking out alone or, uh, or they see that you're not, you know, you're talking to your friends or whatever else. And I think when we model that for people, and then I tell stories sometimes about, you know, people who came and maybe they didn't feel the welcome of somebody or uh, somebody who did come and they were hurting and, you know, there was somebody there who was caring for them. And, and so that I think leads our people to feel that way too. They're like, hey, we're responsible for each other and for connecting. And, you know, so, some time back, I had a woman come up to me and, and uh, introduce me to her new friend. And she said, you know, she told me after, she said, I went in the bathroom, woman's room, I went to the bathroom and I heard this woman sobbing in the, you know, in, in one of the stalls. And she said, I, I began to speak to her and, you know, I just spent the rest of the worship service there in the bathroom with her, just caring for her. And then I wanted to make sure she had a chance to meet you. And I mean, it was the, the thought that she, you know, I didn't think most Christians would do that, but she was clear. My job right now isn't to be back in worship. It's to care for this person who's crying in the bathroom. The congregation definitely notices those actions and the lessons those actions provide from its leadership. Here again is Donna Ackerman. Every sermon that he gives, he, he gives an illustration. And um, he just sort of empowers us and encourages us. But yet then he, um, he's able to equip us and the church is able to equip us to be a better disciple and go out and, and do that. You know, I think we all recognize that um, too much has been given, much is expected. And so as our church has gotten larger, we're just reaching out more, more and more into the community. And um, that's been such a, such a blessing. Another way the congregation reaches out is by participating fully as part of the United Methodist Connection. Again, here's Dan Antwistle. I love the fact that uh, several of our staff are able to serve outside of the local church, whether it's in the conference, and we have some folks who serve at the district level, at the conference level, we love that. I've been able to serve um, uh, with some uh, with you know, boards and agencies in ways that I that I found to be life giving uh, for me personally. So we just we love the we love just living into the connectedness of uh, of other churches, uh, both uh, domestically but also globally, and uh, it's been an exciting part of what we've done. That connection though goes far beyond churches that have the cross and flame of the United Methodist Church in their logos. From the very beginning. Actually, before the beginning, Adam Hamilton had a vision for this new church being a resource to more than just those who showed up on Sunday mornings. I joined the United Methodist Church in college uh, after my freshman year at Oral Roberts University in Tulsa, Oklahoma. I, was a I had come to faith in a little Pentecostal church. As a kid, I went to a Methodist church, Asbury United Methodist in Prairie Village. But 
uh, we dropped out of church and I was not going anywhere and was an agnostic or atheist until somebody invited me to this little Pentecostal church and I gave my life to Jesus and I, uh, you know, felt a call to ministry and I went off to Oral Roberts University. Well, and I had a lot of theological questions, which led me to ultimately, especially around the problem of suffering and evil and, uh, led me ultimately to search for something different. And I began reading John Wesley and joined the United Methodist Church there. When I joined the United Methodist Church, though, I felt this sense of calling, and it seems ridiculous right now. I'm, I was, you know, 19 years old uh, in college when I joined the, maybe even 18, when I joined the United Methodist Church. But I felt this call to want to be a part of revitalizing the church, because at that point in 1980, whenever that was, 1983, uh, 82, 83, the United Methodist Church had already been in decline for, you know, years. And so I I felt God saying, okay, and, and I joined the United Methodist Church because I read the Book of Discipline where it talked, you know, where you read about this historical picture of Methodism, the historical statement and this vitality. And I started reading John Wesley's story and this, you know, revivalism that was going on, revitalizing the Anglican Church at the time. And I thought, I think God wants to do that again through the United Methodist Church. I think it's got really good theology. I, I, I was drawn to it because of its theology and it's, it's you know, holding together uh both the head and the heart and the hands and this idea of an evangelical gospel and a social gospel and being both liberal and conserving at the same time. And, and so I thought it has the right DNA, but you know, it's not, it's not connecting with people. And so I felt God calling me to want to revitalize whatever churches I would serve. And I thought, well, okay, I'll serve, I'll probably serve little churches and then someday I'll serve county seat churches. And then eventually I'll serve, you know, maybe, maybe before I retire, I'll be a district superintendent and I can help churches in a district. I mean, that's kind of the trajectory I think young people think about when you look at your career path in the United Methodist Church as you start off. And so um, while I was, when I went to seminary, I kept having this, you know, this strong sense of, you know, God saying to me, I want to use you to revitalize the church, you know, and I didn't know what that meant, but I felt that was a part of my calling. And so as an associate pastor, I was trying new things. You know, I would try, I would try innovative ideas to try to reach new people. And this church that I was at grew for the first time in, you know, many years. I was the pastor of evangelism. We had a great senior pastor. He was a great preacher. But, you know, I was following up with first-time visitors and doing all these kind of things. And I thought, okay, I've learned some stuff. We can, like, I can give this away. So I, even as an associate, I started putting this little newsletter together with ideas, you know, for, for other churches in the district. And then when we started Church of the Resurrection, it was just, I felt so clearly that this church would have an opportunity to be an R&D department for Methodism to see, let's try things. And if they work, then let's give them away to anybody who's interested. And when I would first tell people this, you know, I was 20, 25 when I came to start the church. And I remember telling pastors this and they would like, look at me and smirk, like, you're just a punk. What, how are you going to teach us anything? And I'm like, I don't, I don't have anything to teach you yet, but I just think something's going to happen in this church. And I couldn't, and I stopped talking about it because it just sounded arrogant. And I didn't, I didn't mean it that way. I just in my bones, I felt like something was going to happen here that you know, would make this an opportunity to teach. And so, uh, you know, as the church grew, it, it, ra it grew so rapidly and there were like things that we were learning constantly. And so again, you know, I was teaching when we had 300 a Sunday, I was doing district workshops in places, you know, and then we grew to 500. And then eventually, you know, we were the largest, you know, within, I don't know, six years or so, we were the largest United Methodist Church in, in the Midwest. And, uh, or I think that's correct. So I know it was certainly in Kansas and, and Nebraska and Missouri. And so people were wanting to know, like, what are you doing? And, and again, we just try to give it all away. So that really became an inherent part of what we were, our mission. And it's captured in our, actually our vision statement, which is to be used by God to change lives, strengthen churches, and uh, transform the world. 
And so the church allowed me to write books, gave me time to, you know, I get a couple weeks a year to work on books and I work on those late at night. And I started working with the Abingdon thinking, you know, is there a way that we could take like, you know, make videos that would go with books that people would study in small groups and would, would strengthen them or their, you know, uh, I started speaking at annual conferences and, and over a period of about 10 years, I spoke, I gave a, you know, a three session talk on leadership in 40 annual conferences. And the church gave me that time, two weeks away to go speak at annual conferences. I consider these leadership revivals. And then, you know, there've been, you know, our leadership institute, 23 leadership institutes. We've had 27,000 people come to those and taking ideas back to their local churches. So today in United Methodism, there's, uh, you know, I would say a, a fairly large number of United Methodist churches across the country have used one or more of the resources. Many a Sunday school and or small group leader has appreciated Adam Hamilton's books. Pastors around the world have used his books as a starting place for sermon series on such topics as forgiveness, living without fear, half-truths, answering the call to follow God in numerous kinds of ministries, making sense of the Bible, marriage, the gray areas between topics that many people see as black and white. In 2016, I had the privilege of writing a story for the Great Plains Conference website about yet another way Church of the Resurrection was trying to help local churches succeed in their mission to make disciples of Jesus Christ. The story was about ShareChurch.com. Adam Hamilton explains further. We started ShareChurch several years ago, uh, and this was a way of taking all of our best ideas, putting them online, and then allowing people to sign up and, and to draw from those resources. So whether it's video clips or photos or, or policies or whatever, you know, we say, look, these are yours to take. If you can you know, make them better, improve upon them, you know, do whatever you want with them, but if they're helpful to you, they're available to you. And, and we have, I think last month, there were like 8,500 resources that were downloaded from the website. And so that's just a really important part of, of who this church is. And, and we, over those 40,000 churches I spoke to, uh, over 10 years, we prayed for our, somebody in our church, prayed for every single pastor in every church for an entire month of all 40,000 of those churches, just praying for God's blessings. And our approach has been to try to really take a pretty humble approach to say, we don't have it all figured out. We, we have, we've made lots of mistakes. Here's some things we think we know, and if it can be useful to you, you know, we offer it to you. Here again is Church of the Resurrection member Debbie Nixon. As a quick reminder, she leads the sharechurch.com effort. This focus on strengthening churches has been a value from the very beginning. Adam may have told you when he first started the church in that very first sermon, he says, if there's anything that we ever do here that actually works, we're going to give it away. And that's continued to now where we've given away more than 100,000 uh, resources through our sharechurch.com platform where people can just go and download uh, resources use them in any ways that they find work in their own context. And it's through this idea of sharing that um, I think it makes us um, more impactful as churches together because we not only share our own ideas, but it's our goal that we share other churches' ideas as well. We're trying to bring people in so that we are sharing all of our ideas for greatest maximum impact. That's the reason we actually called it sharechurch.com and not Church of the Resurrection Resources. It was a reminder that this is about bringing all of us um, in relationship together as church leaders to share our resources with one another for this common mission that we have. So what do you find on sharechurch.com? Well, you'll find graphics that you can add your church's name to and use. You'll find all kinds of forms to help cut down on time that would be spent on administrative matters. You'll find information about hospitality, 
materials for entire sermon series, and even curriculum catered to youth, children, older adults, and other demographics. I've used it often to supplement something I'm preparing for a Sunday school class. What I've found is Church of the Resurrection is doing the work and then sharing it with churches of all sizes. And the staff and volunteers take that job of helping other churches seriously. Their team is constantly learning. There was this moment in time when we began to continue to grow Leadership Institute. So we've done our annual leadership gathering now for 23 years. And there was a moment maybe about 10 years ago or so where we began to realize that we now had staff that had only served in a church that was the size that we were. So they had come on when we were worshiping five or 6,000 or 9,000. And so we wanted to make certain that all of our staff had an idea of what um, the average church size that attends our Leadership Institute actually experiences. So the average size of a church that attends our Leadership Institute is between 100 and 250 a week in worship. And so what you find with our team and our staff and our congregation is we're constant learners. And so we got on a bus and we went, went and visited three different churches um, that were different sizes. So we visited a church of 300, we visited a church of 100, and we visited a church of 50 a weekend. And we met with the um, congregation, we met with the pastors of those churches, and we began to ask questions so that we could also be um, in this um, posture of learning to figure out in our heads too, how do what we do, what are principles that are, again, non-negotiables, and then how do you adapt those practices uh, in every context? And so that's one thing I hope that people see when they see resurrection is that we are a staff and a congregation that is committed to learning. Here again is Dan Entwistle. The impact we've, uh, our connection with other churches and the impact we've been able to share with other churches uh, has benefited Church of the Resurrection in many ways, but that's so meaningful and so important to be connected outside of ourselves. And that's deeply embedded in who we are as United Methodists. Uh, we're, and we're a connectional system. So I love the fact that, you know, that uh, elders itinerate and what a great commitment that is. And I, and I just honor that commitment they make to serve the church, to serve the needs of communities, um, to think missionally, about a uh, about something even outside of the local church and to think beyond the local church but then to love and support the local church to be a, to be effective uh, that's that's just a great uh, that's part of what I love about Methodism the way we've lived that out at Church of the Resurrection has been extraordinary I just have I mean it's one of the things I love the most so 23 years of doing Leadership Institute is one is a very visible um, piece of that. And I think most people probably in the Great Plains Conference are familiar that we hold an annual leadership conference. That's a very visible expression of it, but this is woven into, you know, we get the phone calls that I'm able to, uh, where I'm able to connect with pastors, with church leaders. I mean, this happens on a daily basis where we're just sharing back and forth resources and ideas. It strengthens me and I can only hope that it, that it's been a positive and beneficial thing for the churches we've been able to connect with over, over time. Here again is Adam Hamilton. Our mindset is we want to be learners and we want to invite other people to be learners too. So it's been fun. And, and this is also part of the pain, I think, for us when it comes to the denominational divide and looking at the denomination having a split next uh, next year is 
you know, our, our dream was that we would be a church that would hold together, a denomination that would hold together the left and the right and the center. We're largely a church of the center and, uh, and that there might be a way forward that would, that would keep this denomination, you know, intact and help us all be more fruitful in ministering according to our convictions uh, when it comes to inclusion of LGBTQ people. And, uh, and that's, you know, not likely to happen now. It looks like we're going to have a, a division, but nevertheless, you know, I think about 15% of the churches are going to leave and those churches, many of them are friends of mine and I love them. And I, you know, I, again, I want to wish them well in, in their, in their ministry and Church of the Resurrection will continue to be United Methodist. And I think 85% of our churches will, and we'll be, we'll continue to have, you know, divisions over things. LGBTQ inclusion is, is only one. There'll be others, you know, there are others and there will be others in the future as well. But that's part of, I think that Catholic spirit that I find appealing about John Wesley was this capacity to be able to focus on the things that were central and to try to learn and grow and uh, make room for uh, some of our differences too. One of those central concepts is the idea of loving your neighbor. Most of the times I've talked with Adam Hamilton, he's in sharp blue jeans, a button-down shirt, and a sport coat. This time, however, he's in a gray t-shirt with green and yellow letters spelling out seven times, one for each day of the week, Hashtag love your neighbor. It's a reminder to people who wear the shirt that they are expected to work at loving their neighbor each and every day. And it's just one graphic for a congregation-wide movement to love your neighbor amid the tumultuous campaigns of the 2020 election. But the concept started two years ago. In 2018, uh, we began a, a journey of looking at our 10-year vision from the year 2020 to the year 2030. And uh, I'm anticipating retiring around 2030. And I just like, let's, let's take some real time to dream about what are the needs? Where are the places we need to close the gap between the world as it is and the world as it's supposed to be, or the church as it is and the church as it's supposed to be. And uh, so we set four really big uh, visions of, for closing the gap. Uh, and, and we started living into that in 2019. And one of those was uh, closing the gap of justice and kindness in Kansas City, in the metro area, and really beyond the metro area across the country. And what we recognized is we were living in such polarized times when it came to politics and a whole host of other things, but politics are the, you know, where we see it most. We said, what would happen if we launched a campaign every two years um, during election season that was aimed at depolarizing our, our communities? And, uh, and so as we looked at that, we thought, you know, this is central to what Jesus taught. He said, the second great commandment is to love your neighbors, you love yourself. James calls it the royal law of love. You know, Paul speaks about it multiple times, of how critically important it is. And at the center of our ethic as Christians is this idea of loving our neighbors, we love ourselves. So uh, we said, let's take that theme. Who can disagree with that? I mean, whether you're Republican, Democrat, doesn't matter, liberal or conservative, we all agree, or we should all agree, we should love our neighbors, we love ourselves. So so we said, let's come up with uh, with campaign signs. Let's make it our campaign. And we're gonna come up with cam campaign signs to go in people's front yards and, and on the street corners where there's lots of other you know, campaign uh, signs going up. Let's let's put our signs up there. Let's put t let's get T-shirts made up with this. And, and my T-shirt. I know your people can't see it, but it says hashtag love your neighbor seven times. It's stacked on top of one another. And that was a reminder that seven days a week this is my calling. And the hashtag is a reminder this is to be a conversation. This is to be something that we are talking about and and uh, and fostering this conversation about. So you know we had thousands of people buy the T-shirts. We had thousands of these signs made up, and we're still putting them out. You know all over the uh, the area. And it's been fun to see, we made the graphics available, the PDF available without our church name, because you say, church, uh, they say love your neighbor and then church the resurrection at the bottom. 
but we put the graphic without our name on it out there on on share church so that churches could do this in their own cities and uh, we gave this idea away at uh, leadership institute and it's not like it's some original idea it's just this idea of the campaign and the and the graphics and so our entire month of sermons leading up to the election is on this theme of love your neighbor and unpacking that what that means um churches across the country have downloaded the graphic made their own t-shirts they have printed their own signs they're putting up in yards and what we're thinking is this year was our sort of trial balloon for that and so resurrections you know launching it and then other churches are you know are trying it out but what we uh, what we're anticipating is two years from now we're going to hit it again and there'll be more churches and two years after that more churches and any church is welcome to use it but i love the idea of united methodist churches making this their campaign in divisive times that we are uh we are going to love our neighbors we love ourselves and it's been fun hearing people talk you know when they see the t-shirts uh, you know one woman in the grocery store was talking to one of our members who had her t-shirt on and started crying talking about just how much you know this church had meant to her and how how much that message meant to her at this time and how we tried to live that and people putting up yard signs and having their uh, you know their neighbors saying you know I was thinking about putting up a sign you know for my candidate and I knew that that wasn't your candidate and then I saw your sign and I thought I just want that sign I want to say at this time that we should love our neighbors. Thank you for putting that sign up to remind us. And you know, we also said when you put the signs up in your yard, it's a reminder to you as you drive out of your driveway. Hey, I got to live that. I'm going to put that sign up in my yard. I actually got to love my neighbors, which means not having warm feelings for them. Although hopefully that will happen. But this kind of agape love is is a moral love. It's a it's a love of decision. It's a love of action. It is looking to practice kindness and to bless the people around us, even if we disagree. And we think if we can do that then that's gonna change the community in terms of the rhetoric. And, and we've coupled that with a 30 Days of Kindness campaign. So we're asking our members to, to practice 30 acts of kindness during this month. And we gave them a list of possible things they could do. One of those had to do with our food drive. And so 30 pounds of food we're gonna donate each uh, this month as well. And so there's just a lot of pieces that go to this, but yeah, it's been very exciting. And, uh, and I think will ultimately be something that has a long-term impact on our community. So how do you love your neighbor? It starts with the concept Hamilton shared earlier, closing the gap. The gap between how we actually live and how we should live. I'll let him explain further how that fits in with the future of Church of the Resurrection. When we looked at 2030, we said, what are the places where, where we are not as a church or our community is not like the kingdom Jesus talked about? We wanted to find, you know, what's the reality today and then what's the ideal? And so one of those 2030 goals was to close the spiritual gap. And it was to close the gap between the Christians we are today and the Christians we would hope to be by 2030. And so that requires us thinking about what does a mature Christian look like? And then what are the practices that we pursue to, to get there? In the denomination, we talk about five expectations for our membership, prayers, presence, gifts, service, and witness. And we've used those, but we, we tweak the, the way we talk about them a little bit to make them more specific and measurable. And, uh, and so we began a focus on the Christian walk and what that looks like in our five essential practices. And those are worship and prayer. So it's something we do together, but it's also something we do on our own. Worship and prayer is the first one. Uh, the second one is study and read the scripture. So we want to encourage people to be in study together, but also in reading the scripture to listen for God's voice. The third one is to serve God, both within the walls of the church and outside the walls of the church. The fourth one is to, um, is to give. And we do that both to the church and to God through the church, but also cultivating a... Uh, you know, generosity as our way of life. And the last one is witness, that we together as a church seek to bear witness to Christ in the world, but also individually that we're meant to be sharing our faith and inviting other people to follow Christ. 
And so we addressed all those in the book, The Walk. That's exactly right. So the walk was uh, was an outgrowth of that. We thought, okay, if let's let's put this together in a way that other churches could also use this and would be challenged to have five essential practices or five expectations for membership. And then every one of our members is going to learn these things. And our goal was, so I preached a series of sermons, uh, one Lent, and then each year I bring them back up multiple times during the year so that people are... By the time we get to 2030, I hope everybody not only has those five memorized, but they're actually practicing these things. So that was the, you know, that's one of those goals was had to do with our own personal spiritual development. But others had to do with, uh, you know, I mentioned the justice and kindness uh, uh, gap in Kansas City. One of the pieces of that had to do with, well, there, there was another gap and we called it the opportunity gap. And the opportunity gap was looking at children, low-income children in Kansas City and recognizing that they didn't have the same opportunities that kids in uh, middle and upper income communities had. And part of that started its education, and this ties in with our emphasis on education, but it was uh, a, a lack of access to excellent pre-K education. And so when we met with civic leaders, you know, we said, what are the problems in Kansas City? And, and what we heard again and again was a lack of adequate preschool for uh, low-income children. So we said, well, we can do something about that. And we can't do it all by ourselves, but we're gonna be working with a whole lot of other folks to do this. So we have these 10 partner schools and we're looking to see how can we make sure that every child around those 10 partner schools has access to excellent pre-K education. So we're gonna be pouring millions of dollars into this over the next 10 years. We're gonna be pouring a lot of time into it, working with partnerships to create uh, excellent preschools, maybe located in the schools if there are schools that, are, that have excess capacity or in churches, but creating uh, preschools so that kids have, are not coming to kindergarten way behind, but are coming exactly where they should be so they can learn and grow throughout their elementary school and beyond. So what exactly is the future for the denomination's largest congregation? Well, it's a lot like other churches. The focus has to be on the next generation. So one of the questions we're asking during this, you know, this next 10 years is, again, just how do we, what do we have to do to have so, to have laid such an excellent foundation that the, that this church has a future that far outlives any of us who are part of the congregation today. And that includes things like our planned giving and our foundation, but it also includes making sure that we have a vision that, you know, a vision and that we're, that we're constantly evaluating what we're doing in the light of the needs of new generations. And so this is a huge part of what's, uh, what we're focused on now is, you know, congregations typically, you know, they, they start and they grow and they age and sometimes they die. And, and sometimes that's just how communities, you know, how it happens in communities. But our hope has been to say, okay, how can we be the church that the next generation needs us to be and not just the church that we've always been? And it's so easy after 30 years, you know, we've always done it a certain way. <laughs> and, you know, we, we think of ourselves as a new church start, but yet, you know, we're 30 years in, we've got our own traditions, our own ways of doing things. And so constantly asking ourselves, what do we need to let go of that? served us well in the past but may not serve us well in the future what do we have to have the courage what decisions do we need to make that require courage or doing the hard thing or the thing that you know most people don't want to do in order to be the church for my granddaughter's generation and not just the church for my generation and that requires rethinking how we do worship it requires thinking about music it requires thinking about really all of our ministries in the light of being the church that's that's going to be able to minister to future generations. So that's really a big, you know, a big issue for me and for our people right now is, you know, we've watched our own congregation. The Leewood campus has aged just like the community around it. So, you know, when we started, everybody was in their 30s. And today, everybody's in their 50s. I mean, we've got thousands of people who are in their 20s and teens. And But, you know, we have a large 
you know, group of folks who are in their 50s, 60s, and 70s. And I thank God for them. That's me. That's my generation. And I'm really grateful for them. But we also recognize if, if this church is going to have a future, it's going to be because we were willing to make the changes necessary to be the church for the next generation. And that includes raising up young leaders. So we are, every, every committee in the church, our aim is to have, you know, they're typically nine-member committees, uh, three people on that committee who are over 55, three people who are 35 to 55, but three people who are under 35 who are mentoring the older adults to know what the next generation needs. And, uh, and that's, we're trying to do it with our staff as well so that we're constantly asking, what do we need to change in order to be the church for the future? and I talked about so much more in the more than an hour that he graciously spent with me. We talked more about the likely split of the United Methodist Church next year, and we talked more about the programs and ministries at Church of the Resurrection. We also talked about life in the church amid the COVID-19 pandemic, including the more than 500 people who have discovered Resurrection Online and joined the church since the outbreak. Unfortunately, time just won't allow for me to get into all of those subjects. I want to thank the people at Church of the Resurrection for their assistance with this episode. Thanks to Reverend Adam Hamilton, one of the most humble and caring pastors that I've had the pleasure to work with. I want to say thanks to Debbie Nixon and to Dan Etwistle and to Donna Ackerman for telling me their stories. And I want to say thank you to someone who you didn't hear on this episode, Stephanie Ubers, who serves as Adam Hamilton's executive assistant. With Adam's popularity and schedule, she just might have the most challenging job of all. Terms is a podcast sponsored by the Great Plains Conference of the United Methodist Church and by me, your host, Todd Seifer. If you liked what you heard in this episode, please go rate us and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, on Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you're listening. It helps other people find us. And please, if you feel so inclined, share us on Facebook or other social media. Our music comes via a licensed subscription with First Com Music. You can find archive podcasts on my website, toddseifert.com, or via a link on the conference website, greatplainsumc.org slash podcasts. Feel free to email me any questions or suggestions to tcypher at greatplainsumc.org, and I'll do my best to respond as quickly as possible. Thanks again for listening, and until next time, please do what you can to help make more disciples of Jesus Christ. You can play a small part in helping change a life.